becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger stood around a crowd. It's a dream that you get to make real. He's talking about lice. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, hey. Welcome to the shores. Welcome. Yeah. To the shores. I'm glad to be here. I'm always glad to be here. Mm. I'm not always glad to be here <laughs> in an existential sense, <laughs> but I'm always glad to be here at this table on Wednesday nights. Yeah. It's reliably a good thing in my life. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. This has been something we've done pretty consistently for quite a few years now. Yeah. So what episode are we on anyways? 185. 185. Mm-hmm. Dagum. Rock on. Rock on. Rock on. <clears throat> yeah, it's been fun to kind of just work through thoughts and ideas and kind of practice stuff with you, you know? Yeah. Which we do outside of this, but like mainly tonight in a different way. Yeah. So, so what thoughts and ideas shall we get into tonight? Yeah, there's a lot of things. I think it's always interesting. I think you and I talk a lot about different things before the podcast and just trying to figure out what what really is going to strike a chord. And most of the time mm-hmm. we don't really have exactly what it is, but then we find that flow as far as like the questions on our mind. And, right. You know, <clears throat> like right now, uh, you know, there's there's tons of things I'm thinking on and thinking through and wanting to take action on also, you know, not just thoughts. And so it's always hard to figure out where to start. I think that's something that even to what to focus on to bring your attention to Mm -hmm. and something uh, I was working with our marketing team, uh, over the last few weeks. And, uh, they were giving us like a bunch of different slogans to, to, to throw out on our webpage and stuff or not slogans, but I don't know, like headlines or whatever. Yeah. And there's a, there was like a tagline. Yeah. Like a tagline. Yeah. And one was like, uh, something I forgot how it says, like Medici started from a uh, dangerous idea. Hmm. And I was like, I love that. But why is it dangerous? Hmm. And cause it really resonated with me. And, and as I was going through and I was like, I was like, if we do use this, like we really need to un- like very make it make help people understand like why is it a dangerous idea and there's this whole idea you know i've talked about a few times or a lot of times in our on the podcast is there's this there's this tension that happens when you bring people together you know you know how do we interact with each other Mm -hmm. you know whether you're standing in line with somebody or um sitting by yourself you're having a meeting uh you're about to say something really important to somebody and you need a place to have that talk, you know? So can you say what the idea is, which is dangerous? I think it's, it's voluntarily putting yourself in in tension. Mm. Like it's, it's, it's like, even if you're in a place of tension, but then you choose to be in a public space, you know, there's, there's something that it can, it can help you maybe unwind that tension that you have in yourself. Like, I just want to go somewhere where you be around people. Right. And it's like, why? It's like, well, you want, you want some feedback and, yeah. and so you're bringing your tension into the space, you know, and it's not that tension is good or bad. And it's somewhat, you're getting feedback from it too. Sort of maybe some ideas will come to you or you're reading a book or you're in a conversation with somebody and, 
and there's tension. Like even before we started the podcast, it's like, what are we going to talk about? There's a little bit of a tension of, of where are we going? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you know? Like, okay, here's a couple of topics we maybe hit, but there's, there's tension in, in where is this going to go? And part of it is, is like, oh shoot, we don't have anything to talk about tonight. You know, let's just call it a night and let's go home. Right. You know? And so we're not really, we're not really, um, walking into the tension or being a part of that, uh, and seeing where it goes. And I think there's just something about community and interaction that, and learning anything in general, whether it's in a relationship, business, social, politically, it's like, you need that tension because it, it draws things out of you. And I've heard you say before that you, when you started Medici, you wanted it to be a place where everyone could gather Mm -hmm. regardless of identity, regardless of politics, regardless of religion, regardless of interest. There's something good. At least it seems like you thought there was something good in that. Mm -hmm. What brings us together is a shared love of coffee Mm -hmm. and everything else that clashes is a point of interest Mm -hmm. that's worth exploring. Yeah. Victor Frankl says that in order for anyone to be mentally healthy, they have to be in tension. Mm intention between who they are and who they could be. Yeah. yeah. I like that. And it's even with our, our tagline, like make haste slowly. It's like, there's tension, something like moving in action and in action and slowing down and being in place, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, I just always really enjoyed that space of tension. And so I gave them an example of when I was in Florence with my brother in 1999. Yeah. 99. Uh, no, I was in 2001. It doesn't matter. <laughs> 2001, my brother and I went to see the David and we sat in front of the David. I want to say four hours, but at least two hours wow. just sat there and just looked at it. And he and I just journaled and drew and journaled mm-hmm. for forever. Ended up leaving that journal on the steps of the Santa Croce and could never find it. Oh, but bummer. I, it really was a bummer because I wrote a lot, but the experience still sits with me is if you really sp- sit with something and allow it to kind of speak to you. And sometimes like this things, it's drawing things out of you, the individual, but then also like you can kind of see the intentions of the artist also. And something I've always loved about the David is like, he's captured the exact moment between action and inaction. Mm. It's as if you could almost see the, the tension about to come into his muscles, mm. but it's not there, but it's, it is there. The potential is there. The potential is there. And you, you almost feel like he's just about to like lift his sling off his shoulders. Like he's almost in motion, but he's not there yet, mm-hmm. but he's also not at rest. And when I looked at the, and also on his face, you saw this sort of like thoughtfulness of what he was going, getting into, but then also this determination. And I feel like Michelangelo caught that moment, that in between space where the tension is the greatest between contemplation and action. Mm-hmm. And, that's always really uh, inspired me as far as um, kind of understanding that that in-between space, you know? Right. Like even kind of where the shores are, you know, it's like that in-between space hmm. between the known and the unknown. I like how you said earlier, um, and the word action points to it, but <clears throat> that... <clears throat> You don't know what's going to come out sometimes. Mm. 
and, and you might, like you said, we might sit down before we record and say, well, we have nothing to talk about. I don't have anything to say. And so you might be tempted to say, well, let's just call the whole thing off. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have anything interesting to say. There's really nothing on my mind. that's important. But then if you sit down and just put yourself in the tension of that space, it has a refining <clears throat> quality. That tension has a refining quality. Mm-hmm. And so you look again at what you have to say or what's actually on your mind. I I wrote in a, a poem, I think it's up on my Instagram, a line that is that says, you hide yourself from yourself. I think so much of who we are, we hide from ourselves. Mm. And even on first look, we say, oh, I don't have anything to say. Yeah. But then if you, put your, you expose yourself to the tension and all of a sudden you realize, actually, there are things on my mind. But it required an action to get there. It's not mm-hmm. just a let me look at my mind and see. Mm. You have to take the action in order to find what's there. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating as far as. Yeah, because there's a part. I mean, I, so just to kind of like, um, kind of where I tend to go to is I analyze rather than be in the moment. Yeah. So whether it be emotions or whether it be excitement or sadness or whatever it might be like it, the, <laughs> that emotion occurs to me <laughs> and then I'm more so like, huh, that's interesting. Why would I feel that way? Yeah. And it goes straight into like, instead of maybe throwing a, uh, uh, a chair across the room, you know, mm-hmm. like obviously there's unhealthy ways you can display things, but at the same time, it's like, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you release that and be in the moment with your emotions or how you feel? It's like, instead of allowing the tension to be there, it's sort of like, I have a tendency to deflate the tension into uh, analyzing Mm-hmm. rather than being in the moment, you know? Right. It's like, I, I kind of tend to be, we all kind of like tend towards one side or the other as, you know, sometimes we're too caught up in the moment and you're acting out rather than taking stock of like, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm angry right now. I should, I should kind of like look at this, you know, mm-hmm. where other people who are maybe more, uh, I wouldn't say analytical, but, um, what is that word for that? I want to use the word analytical, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's a very, that's a very fair word for what I'm, what I'm trying to, to get at. But I would, I'd have a tendency more to contemplate or to think about like, Oh wow, that's interesting. That, that's, that's coming a, up. That's a good word. Contemplate. Contemplate. Yeah. It's, it's sort of a lesser version of intellectualize. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. And it reminds me there's that um, character. I forget his name now about uh, in the brothers Karamazov. Mm. I think it's uh, Fyodor Karamazov's, you know, the, the dad. It was one of his like illegitimate children, and Dostoevsky describes him as being what's the word contemplative. Mm-hmm. I think that's the right way to say it. But he doesn't mean it as a compliment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's more like he ruminates. Mm-hmm. You know, he sits and thinks and thinks and thinks and doesn't do anything. Yeah. And the result of that, sort of somewhat predictably is that he grows bitter and resentful. 
<clears throat> and I think, you know, thinking is obviously a good thing. Mm. It affords us a lot of um, safety and security because mm. we can we can play scenarios through and, and see what happens. And sometimes we play a scenario through and we go, I don't like that outcome, <laughs> so, you know. Um, but if you all you do is think, you become contemplative and you ruminate and you don't move anything from the thought into the action. Mm. And it's the action that comes after the thought that makes everything meaningful. Mm. My dad used to say that the word decide is derived from, I think, a Greek word, which means to slay. Mm. So you might think about a decision you're trying to make and you have two or three options. And you could think about that, you know, for as long as you want. You could think about that for your entire life. Maybe the decision you're trying to make is, should I get married? Mm -hmm. You could think about that for your whole life and die alone, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But you lived with both of those options. And when you make a decision, it isn't that you choose an option. It's that you slay all the other options. So you're only left with one. There's no more decision possible to be made. And that's an action. The slaying is an action. It's like I move past the fork in the road. I can't go back to that fork anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what marriage is, right? You make the decision, you slay every other option. You say every other woman on the planet is off the table. Mm. And it's the action which gives meaning to all of the thought and the contemplation. <clears throat> and, and it seems like just taking that one example of marriage, you know, if you imagine the guy who wondered his whole life if he should get married and he's now 75 or 80, um, no kids, he lives alone, you're probably going to imagine a rather sad individual. And I don't mean that he's sad. But like he's in sad shape, Hmm. you know, his clothes are tattered and worn out and probably have stains all over them. (laughs) He, he, uh, you know, probably eats TV dinners and doesn't take care of himself. Mm And, um, but the man who makes the decision for better or worse, and that's kind of like that, that's in the marriage vow, right? For better or worse. Mm -hmm. Now imagine that man at 75, 80. And it's, it's not that he's guaranteed to be in better shape, but it's very likely that he will be because he, he moved into the world. He did something Hmm. and doing something is always better than doing nothing. Yeah. You take an action and you might make a mistake. It's like, you know, the marriage one is, is a really good analogy because it's so deep. It's also hard though, because for example, I'm, I've been divorced Hmm. and so we kind of spiral off on that. But <clears throat> yeah, the idea of action versus contemplation. Where do you, how do you strike that balance? Yeah, I think there's there's something with uh, different personality types. I would say really because um, you can err on one side or the other too much, which is someone who's always just taking action and not contemplating, like haphazardly, mm-hmm. like almost like uh, um, and Dostoevsky, the dad, you know just kind of haphazardly doing things yeah, and always getting in the trouble saying what's on his mind. It's, it's sort of like, 
maybe you should take some time to contemplate, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> where like the, the other brother that you were talking about, you know, who just sits and contemplates and ha- takes no action in the world. Right. And many times, again, I think this manifests differently for different people, but it seems fairly true. The way you said it is that, you know, those who do just contemplate, then you can kind of come and become embittered towards the world because, or even think you're better than other people because you've analyzed what should have been. But like, like with anybody, like you start a business, it's like, yeah, it's great that you have this business plan and how things should happen, but nothing ever happens the way that you plan it to be. It's not until you take action that you start interacting with the world and you start having that tension between what should, uh, what is and what ought, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's when you encounter that, that's where you really, I think, start to grow. It's like with marriage, it's like, oh, you know, this is how the world should be. And then you get married and you have someone to contend with, you know, that demonstrates to you like, well, mm. the, the world's a lot more complicated than I thought it was. And mm. it's something I have to negotiate with specifically this other human being <laughs> and negotiate the future with this person. Right. You know? <clears throat> and then, you know, you do that with friends, you do that with business, you do that with, um, you know, so many, so many things like, you know, you build a rocket, you know, the idea is like, I'm going to Mars. It's like, okay, that's cool. Well, how are you going to do that? And then you start having to contend with all these, not only the, with the technology you have today, but also the technology that will come tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And there's part, you have to start making trade-offs as far as, okay, here's what we want to develop in the next 10 years. However, this is what we have. So do I use what I have or do we, you know, do I wait and, and develop this stuff that's going to take five to 10 years to develop and then we build this rocket, you know? Right. Um, at some point you have to kind of make a commitment one way or the other. I'm going to wait five years or I'm going to start with what I have right now. And then we'll change as we go along, along the way. So I think that's also, I I see that with people when they, they look at, uh, mates or in marriages, a husband or a wife is that you have all these qualifications that you want in a significant other and I think some of those, it's good to have that sort of like a game plan or something like that. Here's what I value. And I find that it's like, you really don't know what you value for the mm-hmm. most part. Mm-hmm. There might be some things that are, you know, I think that's why it's so essential to move thoughts into action mm. because you might think that you value mm. <clears throat> something mm-hmm. and then you go act that out and you honestly look at yourself and you're like, I didn't like any of that. (laughs) You know, I did not enjoy that. Mm -hmm. Do do I actually hold that value or did I just convince myself that I held that value because it was important to my parents? Mm. You know, like that's a pretty common uh, experience that people have. Mm. You know, you grow up as a, uh, a subset of your parents' values. And then you go off to college and you think, well, yeah, I've always thought I was going to be a doctor because Mm. that's what my, parents wanted me to be and thought I was going to go to, I thought I was going to go to A&M to be a, a vet mm-hmm. because my parents went to A&M and I'm like, love that culture and all of that. And then you get there and you're like, well, this, I, I don't, I don't like this at all. Mm-hmm. I actually want to be a psychology student or something. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that reminds me of this quote from Churchill. Winston Churchill said, plans are of, are of little importance 
but planning is essential. Hmm. And I take that to mean you're not getting anywhere without a plan. Yeah. But then once you start, if you if you can't shift, if you you have to throw the plan out at some point. Mm-hmm. Like I love the story of Apollo 13. Hmm. You know, you were talking about rockets. You're not going to get out of this atmosphere without like a really well detailed plan. Mm-hmm. But when shit goes wrong, which it always, always goes does. wrong. <laughs> if you can't figure out how to build an air filter out of parts that were designed specifically for completely unrelated purposes mm-hmm. in the course of what, four or five hours, those men are dead. Mm-hmm. So the plan has to go out the window and everybody has to shift and pivot yeah. and, and think creatively about solutions that the plan had no way to predict. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's really hard to, Like I would say that, so one, I could, I could see one response to this is like, Hey, I just want to live a quiet life. Like I just want to go do my work, go home and, you know, see my family and, um, you know, just have a good life. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but I, it, it seems that. To have a good life, you need to contend with it. Like there's something that you, and it, 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 and I think even in that life will not allow you to just exist. Like it's going to, it's going to make you face it and encounter it, you know, whether it's, you know, dealing with things that are from your past that come up and are affecting your future or your present. Um, cause I, I, I don't know why I had this like, cause I was thinking about relationships and, uh, just like Alice and I and, and moving into the future and, and this whole thought came to me was, man, I cannot move into the future without contending with Allison, hmm. which is having tension with her and, and needing to have that tension. Right. You know, even in our relationship, you know, I feel, uh, I would say probably we challenge each other more intellectually, you know, mm-hmm. um, probably cause I'm so devoid of emotion that we don't do that part. <laughs> That's a sad word. <laughs> devoid. I know. Well, to be extreme. I'm an emotional husk. <laughs> yeah. Emotional husk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So I was just thinking like, that's the part that is interesting to me is like, if I really want to have a a relationship with my wife or with my kids. It's like, there's a certain part that I need to also contend with and, um, and know how to do that. Cause like, even with my, my kids, as far as like, you can kind of have this sort of happy go lucky dad who goes with the flow and just doesn't really encounter their kids. Mm -hmm. And, and that's not good for them and it's not good for you either. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I don't know what picture I'm trying to paint here, but I just don't see a way that you can just have a good life. Well, what, yeah. What, yeah, is, what that, is a good life? What does that yeah. even mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, well, Peterson lays that out pretty well when he says mm-hmm. like, what do you mean? Like you're like, we, we imagine that a good life would be laying on the beach in Mexico and drinking margaritas, mm. you know, but if you really think about it, that's good for like a day. <laughs> 
three days, five, five days. days, you know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, that's not a life, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're going to be drunk and sunburned for the rest of your life. That's no good. Yeah. I think that's really true. You have to have something to contend with. I like that word contend mm-hmm. because yeah, like when you think about your children, you need to contend with your children and you said encounter your children, mm. which is a great word too. It means that there's some unknown there, something unpredictable, mm-hmm. something un, <clears throat> unaccounted for. Yeah, which is to recognize the the sovereignty and the transcendence, the the divine in another human. Mm-hmm. So you are you are unaccounted for who you are, your creativity, your potential, mm. and I'm gonna. I'm going to treat you as such, which means I'm going to contend with you. I'm going to encounter you. I'm not going to pretend like I have you figured out Hmm. because I don't. And you know what it feels like anytime somebody treats you like they've got you figured out. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it Uh feels terrible. Yeah. It's dehumanizing. There's only destruction that direction. So we need to contend with people. The other example that popped in my mind when you were talking was the idea of, of money. Hmm. You know, money, you and I have come to learn over the last couple of years, is, some, is synonymous with energy. Hmm. And if you have money, you need some place to direct it. Hmm. it it's a source of energy, and that energy needs to go somewhere. And if you, I think that's why people who win the lottery and aren't prepared for it do so poorly because they're, they're wielding this massive amount of energy, but they don't have any place to put it. They don't have anything to contend with. You know, the, the average person, if you gave them a billion dollars, they would be done. Hmm. You know, it would destroy their lives. Yeah. So you need something to contend with. And the bigger the something is that you have to contend with, the more energy it's going to take. Mm-hmm. And generally the more energy you are going to find yourself in possession of in order to contend with it. And maybe <clears throat> well, maybe that's why some people get rich and other people don't. It isn't, it doesn't seem to me like the people who get rich generally get rich because they're after money. Mm-hmm. It seems like they go, they set out to contend with big problems and the money shows up to assist in that. Mm-hmm. You know, like Elon Musk is the richest person on the planet and he's contending with some pretty big problems. Mm-hmm. And the opposite of that is if I try to contend with nothing, if I say, well, I, w- I just want to have a good life. And by that, I mean something like laying on the beach or laying on my couch. You know, money's no good to you. Or even if you take it to even further, I, I would say this is maybe a further extreme, is that the government owes me a good life and they should give me my basic sustenance, like shelter, food, uh, like a UBI kind of thing. Well, you're not contending for that it's like it's being given to you. And so there's a sort of, I feel like there's an ungratefulness to, to things that are given to you without working for them or um, <laughs> contending with or having tension with uh, having accountability for, for the things that you are given. 
So like, you know, you know, as you're growing up as a kid and your parents just, you know, foods in the refrigerator, in the cabinet or, you know, and foods on the table and there's a, there's a roof (laughs) over your head, there's AC, there's heat and, you know, but whether it could be even less variations of that as far as like, it doesn't matter. It's like, as you're a kid, you just kind of expect these things to happen. And, but if you live that way into your adult years, (laughs) There's actually something deficient about you. Excuse wow. me. That was a dad sneeze. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> um, you know, there's something like deficient because like you, at some point you have to be able to contend with like, okay, how do I put a roof over my head? How do I put food in that cabinet? And if, if, if it's always given to you, then you're, you, you're, you're nothing but a child. Like I would even argue like people who win the lottery, it's, it's a lot of times you don't know how to handle that kind of responsibility. And because like, you know, if you don't handle like the little bits of responsibility that you have with the little that you have, it's really difficult to handle the responsibility with a lot. Hmm. And I mean, I could, I could see somebody who is, I mean, we see that with, you know, sports, uh, uh, someone from high school goes to, to the NBA. It's like, there's very few that actually come out wise and handle their money well and don't mm-hmm. just waste or spend it on things. Well, I want to go back to the, you talked about value. Mm-hmm. I remember this was like a few days ago. I don't know why I didn't need to use the word remember. <laughs> um, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I'm, a long, I'm a long way from uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> friend of mine who works in, in web design and development, which is the industry I work in. And he's self-employed, which I was self-employed for a long time. So I could relate to this, but he tweeted something like, why, why does it always go so badly when I offer to do something as a favor or for free for one of my clients? Mm -hmm. And, uh, I thought about that for a couple of days. And I think the answer to that question is, because when you give something to someone, they have no idea how to value it. Mm. A client, and this is, I think, pretty well documented. Somebody who pays well for something complains much less than somebody who underpays for something. And that isn't to say that there's a right price for something, but it is to say that when you pay, when you overpay for something or you pay a premium for something, you you know how to value it. Hmm. When somebody gives it to you for free, you don't know how to value it. There's a there's a really I'm trying to find a better example because there's something really deep about that. Like if I'm if I gave you something, mm-hmm. say I gave you a watch. It's not a Rolex, it's not a Timex, it's just a watch. It's old. It's banged up. You know, you're gonna be like, what what is this? Why are you giving this to me? Mm-hmm. You know? And if I don't explain it to you, you know, I don't explain to you that that was my great, great grandfather's watch and it survived the civil war and two world wars. And, you know, the story of how my grandmother, I'm making all this up, but you know, like (laughs) that this thing has incredible value Hmm. to me and above and beyond that, it was given by Ulysses S. Grant or somebody to my great, great grandfather or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like all of a sudden you're like, what this thing's actually probably worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars because mm-hmm. of its historical significance, something like that. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> but if I just give it to you, you don't know how to value it. Mm-hmm. You have to have, you have to encounter it. You mm-hmm. have to contend with it. 
and part of that is you contend with the story of what things are. Hmm. Um, I mean, we do that all the time with money. Like we think we know what money is worth, but really it's that we're also familiar with the story Hmm. and you kind of start scratching at that story a little bit and you realize, Oh, we're all just playing pretend here. Mm -hmm. This is all just monopoly. We just all believe the story. Mm -hmm. And we contend with that every time we go purchase something or every time we go to work. Yeah. In a sense, there's nothing real about it. The, The real part is our encounter of it. It's the energy that we spend to earn and the energy we spend when we spend. Mm-hmm. It, it's the actions. It's not, it's not, it, it isn't contained in the intellectual. It isn't mm-hmm. contained in the, the contemplative. It's, it's not an idea. It's an action. Well, but, yeah, as you're saying, this is also because like there's, there's a part of when you're talking about this is there's a scarcity aspect you know, if, if something is scarce, uh, there's more value to it. Like here's a watch that you, you lose success grant gave your, yeah. you know, it's like, it's wow. This is really something scarce. Like there's one, this is a one, one of a kind. Right. Yeah. Right. And you know, but if, uh, if you give me a, uh, door, the Explorer watch and there's, it's one of 10 trillion, you know, <laughs> door Explorer watches made out of China. It's like, you know, unless there's some, there's something, there's some sort of like context with that specific door, the Explorer watch, it's like, it really doesn't have much value. And so there's something about scarcity, whether it be in narrative or, uh, you know, this is the only, this is the limited edition door Explorer watch, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, then there's some sort of value that's kind of like, um, that's kind of added. And you see that with, you know, with money that, governments who just print tons and tons of money at some point it loses that scarcity and the value of it is inconsequential you know as far as uh, this one guy was telling a story about how like you it's like a uh it's like a 100,000 like a Zimbabwe whatever the Zimbabwe is called the currency and like just to buy a cup of coffee you have to like have a stack that's like you know a foot tall to buy a cup of coffee and it's like but at one point it was maybe a half a stack to buy a cup of coffee. At one point it was like one of those bills you could buy a cup of coffee. But at some point, if you don't have that, if there's not the scarcity, then, you know, uh, it just starts to, to lose value. And, um, that's interesting. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, wow. That's funny. I don't know if I can make this connection because I was going to bring it back to the tension part too, that like scarcity actually brings tension, you know, but whenever you have a lot of something, there is no tension. You you tend not to have as much value to it. So like Mm -hmm. someone who you give them, they, they, they made $30,000 a year and all of a sudden now they're a billionaire. It's like, they have so much of this. They don't know how to value it. They don't know how to value it. There's no tension where like somebody who's living off of $30,000 or $50,000 a year, there's more tension because you have to think about where you're going to put this and, and somewhat prioritize needs and, and wants. Mm -hmm. And when you have a billion dollars, there's less ability to do the values and wants and needs, um, in that area. 
So like, I mean, but for Elon, I mean, I'm just, you know, he's, he's a billionaire, but it's still, it's still operating under a scarce resource. Like, do I put this, do I go all in on Tesla or do I go all in on SpaceX? Okay. I'm going to do both. It's like, he had scarce resources. He had to decide between two companies and he chose both of them. Mm-hmm. And so the value of that decision is that much greater because, uh, the risk was so much higher, you know, yeah. there was so much more tension there. So there's something about that. It's like if more resources, you have to have a bigger vision with when you have more resources. Well, yeah, I, I think it, I think it's good that you're tying this back to tension because even with money, people who have a lot of money generally don't have that money in their bank account. Hmm. They generally, people who are wealthy and stay wealthy for any decent period of time, which statistically, and this is amazing to me, statistically wealthy families are broke again after like two or three generations. Mm -hmm. Wealth doesn't stick around very long unless you're the Rothschild or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But people who (coughs) retain wealth for for very long, they tend to have that money deployed Mm. in an at-risk situation. Yeah. So, for example, Elon, I don't, you know, who knows how much money he has on hand, like cash on hand. Most of his net worth, when we say he's the richest man on earth, is tied up in Tesla and SpaceX and everything else. It doesn't sit, he doesn't have, you know, what is he worth? $300 billion or something. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have that money in a, it's not in a bank. Yeah. It's, it's in the world. Working. Working, Mm -hmm. doing something. So he is in tension. And so he's not like chilling on a yacht. He's going to work. Mm-hmm. He's sleeping, you know, in conference rooms because all of that's on the line mm-hmm. and he's going to take care of it. He's going to contend with it, which is why he's gotten so rich. At least that's my contention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Your contention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's interesting. It's, it's like if something, it's almost like the, the saying like idle hands is a devil's tool, you know, hmm. it's like, if we're not putting to work the things that are around us, it just ends up deteriorating, you know? Yeah. Uh, even like relationships, like if, you know, again, you've, you've kind of put this effort and investment into, you know, and, and I don't know if it's as my kind of financial terms, but, um, you know, you have these kids, you're investing in the future, but if you don't continue to invest in it, it's like, the, that relationship that you have with the future is going to deteriorate because you're not investing in it anymore. So, hmm. so even though you might have made that initial seed investment, <laughs> I see what you did That's there. Good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> if not, I laughed at, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, it, it's like, yeah, you can say that they're your kids, but if you're not in continually risking and, and putting more into that relationship, it sort of deteriorates. And so you have to kind of continue to live on that edge of tension of who is this person? What do they need? How can I help them? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, it's the same thing when you're in a business, it's like, you can't just like, you know, invest in something or start a business and just like, okay, let it ride. Let's go. Yeah. You know, maybe you, maybe you'll get three to five years of good, of good times, but at some point you're going to have to contend with it again and and direct it and be intentional. Well, it seems to me like you don't 
have anything that you don't know. Hmm. What's that? Well, you might say you have kids. Mm -hmm. If you don't know your kids, Hmm. you don't really have them. Mm -hmm. You might have been there. Your seed might have, you know, been there at the origin story, but I mean, it's like, it reminds me of, so I, I moved into this house <clears throat> four, almost five years ago. Mm. And there were two bicycles in the shed that some previous owner had left here. Mm. And they were kind of shitty. And <coughs> I just, I cleaned out the shed cause I wanted to use it for my workspace. And I, I put these bikes over on the side of the shed thinking, you know, sometime maybe I'll try to fix them up or I'll take them and sell them or something like that. It's five years ago. They're still there. Hmm. Now, I might say I have two extra bikes. But also, if somebody took those bikes, I might not notice for hmm. a year or yeah. two years. So do I have those bikes? I mean, if you have something that you wouldn't even notice it being gone... You don't have that thing. Hmm. You know, if you don't spend time knowing something about the things that you have, it's it, it's a meaningless statement to say that you even have them. Hmm. And I hate to equate like having kids and having bicycles, bicycles. <laughs> but it is that way. I mean, <clears throat> um, if you haven't spent time exploring something, you don't know it. Hmm. And if you don't know it, it makes no sense to talk about having it at all. And it's the same with money. Hmm. Like if you don't, like at a large scale, you know, if, <clears throat> we've, we've learned about this idea of monetary velocity as something which is important. The value of a currency is in part dependent on how, much it's changing hands. Hmm. You know, if everybody has a million dollars in their bank account, but nobody ever exchanges money, what's that number? One million is completely arbitrary. It means nothing. Hmm. It isn't until you essentially <clears throat> put something into action that the idea of money becomes something with value. Hmm. A number in your bank account has no value. It's expression in the world as it, as that energy turns into action, that's what has the value. Hmm. It's the same like we were talking about with ideas. You can contemplate all day long. It doesn't mean anything until you actually <laughs> you do something You can actually about know it. the entire universe, but if you don't do anything, it's yeah. like, what good is that? What mean? good is that? Yeah. It's no good. Mm-hmm. It's meaningless. You even talk about like, I mean, just thinking about like God or something like that. It's like, it's like God could just sit around and just be like, I know everything. But there's something about the whole idea of speaking into existence and making known, mm. you know, himself through creation. It's like, there's something almost uh, divine about that idea that you're talking about is. Oh, like, that's beautiful. So it's almost like you have to, in order to even know yourself, you mm-hmm. have to learn that through action. Mm-hmm. Cause it has to be in relationship to something. And, yeah. and how can you demonstrate, even demonstrate what you have, you know, it's just thinking on a finite scale. It's like, how do I really know what I have, what I'm capable of? It's like in my mind, I can do a double back flip, you know, but 
am I really capable of that? It's like you have to go out into the world. You have to speak <clears throat> into existence. Are we modifying discard? <laughs> I can do. I think, therefore, I am. Therefore, I. I act. Flip. Therefore, I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's something about that. Oh shoot! I forgot who that. I used to know all the different contentions around that statement, but I don't right now. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's something about acting in the world that is somewhat divine. It's like to be able to interact with something that you have created. And, and I think kids are like on a small scale of that is sort of like you act in, you act in the world, actually you're acting into the hope and future of the world by having kids. And in doing that, you now have to contend with the future in a way that you didn't have to contend with it before mm. when it was just you. Mm. Cause I, when it was just, if it's just me, unless, I mean, I don't doubt that there are some who interact with the world for the future, but I think it's very rare. Even those who might say they have this benevolency to them. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I think kids are the, are the true action in the world that says, no, I care about the future. And I want to, I, I want to produce something that will move into the future, future that hope and that that contending and and to see something great, you know. And and that's, I think that's why history is so beautiful, is that we see how those who've come before us have contended with the world and actually given us something that is better than what we had mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it be the whole idea of you know, uh, was it adverse poverty was it called extreme poverty <clears throat> abject abject things okay. not adverse <laughs> abject poverty it's like you know today where you know 97% of the world before the 1900s was living in abject poverty and it's like now it's like uh so much less than that i think it's less than 10% or something uh, less than 10% and it's like it is a better world and to have that idea of the future and that oh, shoot that's so I'm going to, I'm going to jump real quick and we can come back. But I think that's the hardest thing when you come into the world and you do have so many more advantages, you know, electricity, running water, sewage, uh, it becomes almost easier to take advantage of all that has come before you instead of seeing them as sort of, okay, I've been given this gift and now how do I move into the future and make this a better place for those who are coming after me? And I think that's, I think that's the hard thing whenever you do kind of reach a sort of maybe an equilibrium of life existence or hmm. <clears throat> subsistence that it's, it's really difficult. Like, I mean, Elon Musk, it's like, Hey, I've got $350 billion. It's like, I'm just going to sit around and on a yacht the rest mm-hmm. of my life. It's like, but there's something so much more admirable, like whenever you take the resources that you have, whether it's little or whether it's a lot, and you start investing in the future, like that's a life worth living. <clears throat> hmm. Whether it be in your kids and your relationships and your business and the world and government, it's like, how can I make this place a better, a better place than what I've experienced? You know, it's like, hmm. I mean, as you see that with like immigrant families, like moving to the U.S. It's like, I want a better future for my kids. It's like, I might not experience it, but my kids will. I I feel like you see that in a lot of, a lot of examples in that area. Hmm. 
makes me think that there has to be a a grand vision or a grand ideal. Hmm. And it comes down to very simple terms. Like, is it better to be alive than it is to be dead? Hmm. And, you know, I don't really care what you think about that. We all behave as though it's better to be alive than to be dead. Hmm. And maybe you don't even have much control over it. Maybe it's the evolutionary programming of our responses. I mean, I, I love this. Um, like our brains, which we consider our thinking machines, are pretty slow. Mm-hmm. You know, if you catch a snake out of the corner of your eye, your body's going to jump before you're consciously aware of what you saw. Mm. A part of that is because your optical nerve is apparently mapped straight into your brainstem. Mm. Your body sees things before your image-making apparatus in your brain processes it. Mm-hmm. So it's like you you want to stay alive. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot you can do about that. Um, so then the, the next question would be, well, it, it, it might be something like why? Mm. So that I can protect my offspring. You know, there's a pretty basic fundamental answer to that question and and why would you want to protect your offspring well because when they come out they're completely vulnerable mm. and without my protection they're going to die and i care about whether they live or die for the same reason inex- inexplicable as it may be that i care about whether or not i die we we see our offspring as an extension of ourselves mm. um so it's like there's always this tack on question there's a statement after the answer like is it good to be protected yes but not in its own right Hmm. it's like a yes so that i can do and then fill in the blank Mm -hmm. it's good to be protected so that i can one not die but also so that i can let's say heal i can rest you know well why do you need health and why do you need rest because there's things to do Hmm. you know the 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 bodies in the matrix that are plugged into the power grid are pretty well protected ultimate protection but nobody wants to live that kind of life mm. there's something in us that is desperate to know what is real mm. and we will you know, I don't I love that movie, The Matrix. Yeah. I, I don't think that anybody watches that and thinks, oh, I want to be the guy that gets plugged back in. Although mm-hmm. we all understand his character yeah. because there's always something in us that's like, God, that would just be easier. Totally, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. But we're all... Cypher, was it? that? Yeah, Cypher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we're all completely taken by the idea that there is some reality that is just on the other side of understanding. Hmm. And we will risk everything for that. And interestingly, bringing up that, tell me what you think about this. Um, Even the machines understood to take care of the body. Like how much care went into developing that whole system. Hmm. Even though they didn't understand it. That was kind of the whole thing is they wanted to understand, like we created this perfect world and everyone rejected it. 
Right. And it's, it's not only the worlds that they created, but even the apparatus that you see them in, this certain gel and the, the connection to their brains. And there's so much effort that went into preserving the human body. It's like they even valued the human interaction and the human, uh, the human body so much so that they built this whole system around it. So I, I, I actually have not thought this through, but it's interesting that even though it was not understand, they couldn't understand it. They still acted as if there was value in being human. Hmm. I don't know what the connection is, but it reminds me of this quote. I don't remember who said it, mm-hmm. so, but it goes something like if, if the devil were in charge, hmm. the churches would be open and the bars would be closed. Oh, interesting. What does that mean? Hmm. <clears throat> Well, I think it means something like, what's the difference between being protected and being placated? Hmm. What's the difference between being an individual and having something which you might call free will Mm -hmm. and playing by the rules? I mean we spent a lot of time talking about rules last week that mm-hmm. it's this idea that, that our transcendent divinity is found and expressed through creativity and creativity requires risk mm-hmm. and risk requires doing something that goes beyond what has been prescribed. And if you really want to control someone, you don't offer them any opportunity to take a risk. You tell them exactly how things are going to be Hmm. and try telling a bar room exactly how things are going to be. Hmm. You know, the devil in this scenario is sort of this, it kind of sends a a shiver down my spine. It's like, nope, you're all going to go to church. No one's going to go to the bar. No one's going to build anything. No one's going to explore anything. No one's going to take any risks. You are under my thumb. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the controlling mother or the tyrannical father. Mm-hmm. That's the Munchausen by proxy syndrome. What's that? It's, um, so it's, it's when a parent generally it manifests in a mother becomes so protective of their mm. children or of a child that they will manifest or fake illnesses that they give to the child Mm. to ensure that the child needs them. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So there's a really famous example of this that happened not too long ago, like in the last 20 or 30 years where this mother had her daughter diagnosed with several forms of cancer, had her in a wheelchair uh, convinced her she was paralyzed. I mean, the, the list of ailments was like two miles long. Mm. And uh, when the girl turned something like 17 or 18, uh, she murdered her mother. Mm. And it turns out she didn't have any of those ailments. Wow. But the, the mother had convinced not only her, but also something like 10 different doctors mm. that all this was true. And the doctors, you know, gave their diagnosis and 
it really fucks with your head about like what we think we know as true. Yeah. Especially like we think that an illness is something objective mm-hmm. that you can check and verify whether it exists or not. But this woman had all these doctors, you know, diagnosing her daughter with all this stuff. And her daughter finally met this guy online. They started dating online and then he came to town and apparently the two of them together murdered her mother and then fled. Hmm. Um, but it's this idea that I, I'm going to protect you from the world. And if I have to injure you to keep you under my protection, I will do it. Hmm. And I think that's something of what's contained in that idea of the devil's going to keep the churches open and close the bars. Hmm. I'm not going to allow you anything which might risk your leaving my, what I might call protection or love, but really, which is something like the, the, the song of the siren. Hmm. I will have you and I will devour you. And you won't escape. It's interesting. I, when you say that, I kind of, I kind of see more of a yin and yang in that, but uh, I, I follow the, I follow the logic, what you're talking about. And it makes sense to me because it's more of like, I'd rather give you a safe place where you feel good and again, these are all generalities and you're having all these sort of positive emotions rather than going to a bar where you have, you're going to encounter sort of negative emotions and the effects of <laughs> the next day and stuff like that. But it's like, I could also see like, it's like almost in this instance, the devil doesn't want either because, you know, there's this part where you, when you get together and you have beers or something like that, and there's like, you kind of loosen up a little bit and you're able to Mm -hmm. kind of think and um, kind of maybe have a release of some sort, you know, and, and there's a certain part that that also happens at church, but then there's this whole controlling part. Well, if I can get them beyond that space, I can either turn them into complete drunkards or I can turn them into like sort of this non-thinking worshiping, person who is not really contending with the world, but just is living outside of reality. You know? Well, see, I think that's what the devil wants though, mm-hmm. is this non-thinking, non-contending soul. Yeah. Which I kind of see I like mean, there's like a, there's like a middle ground between those two where yeah. those also represent the, the well, and the process. other thing that I take from it is that mm-hmm. the devil wants to control you and God doesn't want to control you. Mm. That's why the fall happened. Mm. That's why redemption is offered, but not applied by default. Hmm. God has no interest in telling you what to do yeah. because he wants to actually have a relationship hmm. or at least that's the idea presented in the Christian story. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like when you have kids, when they're young, yeah, you tell them what to do. Their life's on the line. Mm-hmm. But if you continue acting that way as they grow, you're, you're they're going to leave and hate you. Hmm. You have to start, you have to stop telling them what to do and allow them to do what they want to do hmm. and allow them to get hurt and allow them to fall and allow them to fail because that's where individuality exists. Yeah. And you have to be interested to know that hmm. I want to know what you do, hmm. not what I tell you to do. You know, yeah. I'm an old stodgy stuck in my ways, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> borderline conservative, you know, like <laughs> go, go be progressive, go do shit. I'm interested. I yeah. want to know what you do because yeah. you're not me. Mm-hmm. It's a recognition of an, of a, a separate individual. Yeah. And I, I think that 
that quote is a response to that observation that God seems to behave towards his people like they're individuals worth knowing, hmm. whereas the devil seems to behave as if everything that is worth doing isn't worth doing. Hmm. You might as well not do them. Sit and contemplate. Mm-hmm. And that's the Luciferian idea. You're an intellectual. You can think really well. So just mm. think and think and think and think and don't actually do anything. Yeah. Or, hey, you just act and act and act and act and, and act. And don't act. think. And don't think. Yeah. Unconscious. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's like he's like, like there's that. I think that's the whole interesting idea of the Luciferian is like it's always pushing to the extremes where, you know, there's this idea of balance. And again, you see that in the yin and yang and stuff or, you know, in Christianity where it talks about the listening to the spirit. It's like. It's like, you know, it talks about the spirit is able to divide bone and marrow, you know, and uh, and there's like this sort of sp- that's like being able to see between the lines of like what is uh, extreme and what's what's sort of um, uh, circumstantial as far as in this instance, this is right. In this other instance, it's not right. And, and being able to kind of sparse between the two, you know, hmm. but that takes again what kind of talking about is like contention and interaction and, and skin in the game accountability because mm-hmm. you're, you're trying to work out like we talk about that too. It's like another kind of Christian idea is like working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like there's this part that you're contending with life and it, it's not always, the answer is not always a, even for the same question, depending on the context between, depending on the situation where you're, uh, what you're in, it's like, you know, you know, should you kill this person? It's like, well, what situation are you in? It's like, it's like in war, maybe there's certain things. <laughs> it's an extreme example. I know. Well, I, I wonder that like three or four times a day. Thing. Yeah. It's like, I mean, if you're a complete pacifist, but mm. you're just going to let somebody who is going to kill your whole family, it's like, you know, is that an instance where you, step up and you take somebody's life, you know, that's, it's, it's, I think those are the things that are really hard to, to contend with is like, but should I just, anybody I disagree with kill them? It's like, no, that's, there's something not right about that. Did you watch uh, 1773, the prequel to Yellowstone? Yes. It's a, it's very much a lonesome dove kind of story. You know, they're, they're doing this uh, Oregon trail journey. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. Yeah. It's really good. And <clears throat> what's interesting about that story and stories like it. And I think what's interesting about the way that the world was for a very long time before modernity, you see the same things in, let's say game of Thrones, for example, or, or depictions of medieval times. Mm-hmm. And the thing, the thing is that, you're out on a journey and you have to be suspicious of everyone that you run across. Not like suspicious of whether or not they're going to try to kill you. Yeah. Very extreme. Mm -hmm. It's very extreme. So yeah, we live in modernity. We live in a time when like, I don't ever think about whether or not to kill someone, Mm -hmm. but for most of our history as humans, you thought about that all the time. Yeah. Because everyone was opportunistic. Mm Mm-hmm. Everyone had reason to, everyone was in sort of life or death situations. And when you're in a life and death situation and someone comes, you come across someone else who's also in a life and death situation, tension is extremely high. Mm. And 
it doesn't take more than a crack or two in somebody's moral fiber to say, I should just kill you and take everything that you have. Hmm. I love that tension too. Like whenever uh, you see, it's a lot of like uh, cowboy films where somebody from the outside is riding into the camp of an, in, of, of an insider or whatever, you know, and, and everyone's sort of like on tension for the, yeah, there's a tension. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Is this, are we going to have to pull our guns here or what's right. going Who on? Who are you? And so there's like, you know, a couple scenarios that happen is like one would be like some negotiating happens and not like verbally, but like physic, you know, kind of looking at each other and talking to each other. And then they're all sitting around the campfire and enjoying each other's company. You know, the other is, is like guns are blazing and people are dying, you know, in some variation thereof, you know, but yeah. <clears throat> It's like we still have that to some degree, but not in the degree of life and death. Sometimes it's like, you know, in business, uh, you're you're OK. What are you really after here? Like, are you wanting to come alongside me in this? Are you opportunistic and you want to use me for your product? And I happen to be a little bit more um, uh, established and then you want to use that establishment to like mm -hmm. grow your product, you know? And it's like, and, and again, even in that, it's like, Hey, you are more established. I have this product and I think this would be a good relationship. It would help me and it would help you. And they tell you how it's going to help you also. And then that can be a good relationship because it's like, Hey, th there's a sort of honesty of like, I, you can help me and I will help you by, this is going to be a good product for your consumer, you know, for your, for your, um, um, uh, I suppose say patience <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> for, for your customer base, you know? And so there's, there's those things where they can be actually mutual beneficial, you know? Uh, but all those things have to be negotiated. And even though it's not, maybe guns are blazing, but there's, there is that on, on a different, maybe less, uh, life or death, um, uh, results, you know, but, uh, but you still, you still kind of come into those situations. I mean, even smaller ones with your, I want to, I want to kind of like bring this also back to kids and family too, is like, you know, you know, where if you're, if your child, um, defames your name, you know, then you kill the child, you know, it's like, uh, you know, back in the day, if, if you, if the woman has, <laughs> I was say, have you done that? <laughs> no. Well, I was just thinking like, if, if, like, if, if your daughter like loses her virginity, then she mm -hmm. has brought, you know, shame on the name of your family. And therefore you might kill this person. You know, that even happens today in, in certain cultures. And, you know, but it's, 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 it's like, how do you negotiate that in the present age where maybe death is not on the line, but there's also that same, um, <clears throat> like if you allow your kids to do things in their youth, that's not beneficial to them in the, in the future. Well, I, I kind of lost that line. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Being a conscious human is a real bitch. <laughs> so, it's so hard to get it right. And and I think realistically, though, it isn't about getting it right. Mm. It's about going beyond right and, and making something new. Mm -hmm. 
but that takes a lot of courage and it takes a willingness to fail. It takes a willingness to be wrong. <clears throat> and I think we live very sad, pitiful existences when we concern ourselves so much with what is right and wrong that we succumb to inaction because we also aren't smart enough to know what is right and wrong. Totally. It's easy to see it. It's easy to, to call it when you see it. It's not easy to know it and go act it. It's like the whole idea of like testing and approving. You know, you need to, you need to push the boundaries and also test things. Even things mm. you think and know are good. It's like you, you need to have that experiential knowledge of that this is good. Like, I've been told that this is good. This is the way this should be done. And that's the whole thing with teenagers is they're going to push against that until they see that what you're saying, no, that is good. Or, man, my parents mm, are lying to, to me. It. Yeah, it's yeah. like, I need to verify that. And I think that's right. something that as we get older, we don't we don't have that same spirit in us to, like, maybe have that tension. I think that's why it's so beautiful for the wisdom of ages and wisdom of age and also the youth to have those interactions is where it's continues to push the elders, the youth does. And then the elders kind of help provide guidance for the youth, you know, and, and we need to continue to have that relationship where, you know, that was kind of more inherently built into the, the family structure where your grandparents were lived with you and, where you live in the same city or on the same block, you know, where, mm. and it's a difference and there is a difference. Like there's a, I know a lot of people say like, and, I, and again, there's, there's, I think there's exceptions to this rule, but for the most part, your blood is something that it's like, was it blood is thicker than water? You know, I, I think there's a reason why that that saying is, is, is valuable because, you know, it's like, like, you know, Matt, it's like, you know, we're best friends, but still, you know, I can, I can never not be my father, my daughter's father, right. you know, like that is just impossible. Like you and I cannot be friends, mm -hmm. but I will never not be my daughter's father. Right. Uh, now I don't want to, I still want to be your friend, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, it's just interesting. Like that's a, that's a label that I can never not have, you know? Yeah. Like. Michael, the entrepreneur or business owner or whatever, it's like all that can change, all that can change, you know, but mm. me being my, my daughter's father cannot ever change even in denying it or whatever. It doesn't matter. Hmm. Yeah. I, I thought about that. So one of Elon Musk's kids recently changed their last name to distance themselves from him because he's, he became very unpopular on the left. So one of his daughters, I think she was in her 20s or something. And I read about that and I thought, that's so stupid. Mm. Because you can't escape being that man's daughter. Mm. You could change. There's nothing that you could change. Yeah. Which Plastic surgery doesn't matter. Make any difference. <laughs> mm -hmm. You might, you know, change your last name to <coughs> Smith. Mm -hmm. Still, everyone's going to know. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> well, there's very few things that that's the case, you know, like you, you, 
you can almost lose everything, but you cannot lose your relationship to your family. Yeah. Like even like, you know, your ex-wife or, um, you know, my wife, it's like we produce something together that will not ever change. Like if you're a business yeah, partner, right. you, you start a business, it's like that business goes under. It's like we don't share anything. Well, that's something I, I've heard this said, and I'm just verifying that it's true. It's like mm-hmm. if you have, once you have kids, there's no such thing as divorce. Mm. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Maybe explain that. I, 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 see what, I know where you're going with that. Mm. My ex-wife is a part of my life, whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. I cannot change that. Just like I can't make my kids not my kids. Mm-hmm. I can run away as far as I want, but they're still there. Mm-hmm. I think um, if you don't have kids, you can get divorced. Mm-hmm. You, you can cut all ties and block phone numbers and, you know, move cities and never see each other again, never think about each other again. That's possible. It's mm-hmm. not possible once you have kids. Mm-hmm. The till death do us part becomes very real. Mm. And that's been hard for me to come to terms with. Wow. That's interesting. Till death do us part. It doesn't matter if you're married or divorced. It's right. like till death do you part. When you have kids, it, it that remains the same. Yep. Okay. That's, I didn't put you know, that and together. I, and she and I don't live together anymore. <clears throat> and we don't, we talk when we need to about the kids, which mm-hmm. is often mm-hmm. because they're kids and, uh, they get themselves into trouble and they have things that need to be celebrated like birthdays and school events and papers need to be signed. And, you know, so we talk mm. and, we may hate it, uh, but it has to be done. Hmm. There's no getting around it. And all that to be said, I mean, I, I think in my in that particular scenario, I think that us getting divorced was the right thing to do. And mm-hmm. it's good that we don't live with each other anymore. Um, but the idea that we're divorced is 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 silly. Hmm. It's laughable. Hmm. Um, and it's problematic. I can tell you as someone who's dated post-divorce, it's hard, it's hard to date somebody who's still attached to someone else. Mm -hmm. You know, as much as I wish that wasn't the case, it is. Mm. It has nothing to do with how I feel. It has to do with the reality of blood that is, exists in this world. So like, like anybody who came into your life would also have a relationship with your ex. Yep. Which is, I mean, whether it's unavoidable, unavoidable. Yeah. It's in, in this whole discussion that we're, it's like, there's, I can, I can kind of see this whole fairy tale that we kind of spin and have gotten away from because we've kind of forgotten how we got here in that. Or at least this conversation just kind of has brought to light that it does matter. Like when you commit yourself some, to someone and you bring people into the world, it's like you're making a commitment and a statement for the future. And, and that's really difficult. I mean, that, that's hard to do. And it's probably the that and kind of how we frame this today. It's like marriage is probably the hardest 
most difficult decision that you can make. And it's also the most rewarding and it can be also the most heartrending, you know, mm. because there's actual consequences and actual, um, fruit that comes from that relationship. Yeah. Which is actually kind of beautiful in a sense. Yeah. And it's almost good that it's that difficult. You know, it's like if you didn't experience that difficulty, it wouldn't make the commitment and the, the bringing the life into the world have, have as much value as it actually does. You know, I think we've kind of told ourselves in the modern age that, that we don't, it's not as valuable as what we think it is or that it actually is, you know? Maybe that's a good place to end it. Uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty. That's pretty. Uh, you've, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, as we both kind of pause, it's like, oh yeah. my gosh, man! Like, I feel like that. That's kind of opened some things up to me. Like, that I want to kind of think on a little bit more. Okay. Well, I love doing life with you, dude. Yeah. Because likewise, like, we just kind of stumble into these Cheers. things and we walk away with more questions than we have answers to. Which is my favorite. Which I is love great. questions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, happy Wednesday. Yeah. Love you guys. Love you all. Thanks for listening. Ciao. See you next week. That's a, that was intense. Like, I, I just like, I felt like I just kind of saw something that was like, I felt like I've always known, but it like, I'm, 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 I